1: It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and this is episode 249, Great Debates
2: in Fitness and health.
1: Two doctors debate common questions submitted by you. We've got the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, man?
2: Hey, man. I'm doing all right. I just wrapped up training a little while ago. spent the day teaching some medical students dermatology today, and uh, I guess I'm ready to go to war (laughs) yeah yeah we're about to do battle finally
1: so okay for the listeners at home the reason why i chose this sort of setup like a debate it's a faux debate and and actually i got the inspiration to do this from the american journal of clinical nutrition's great debates in nutrition which if you are previously unaware of that excellent series i believe they have three or four topics one is on like uh do we need to decrease Uh, I think saturated fat intake, uh, in, in North America, do we need to label foods differently for ultra processed foods? And then the third one that I'm aware of, uh, has to do with food addiction. They're all excellent. And it's interesting because they pose, they pit two different experts against each other. Right. And it's not that like one expert has like a, you know, monolithic view of the situation. They both in fact have very reasonable positions, but they're pitted against each other. And because they're actual experts, they kind of understand where the other person is coming from and they just talk about it, which is super useful for uh, people like me to read because I'm like, oh, this gives me a better perspective than if I just went and read all the studies that, you know, they cited. So it kind of gives me that sort of expert interpretation. So I thought that if we did this, that would uh, give a more complete sort of understanding of our recommendations. Also, it would establish kind of the strength of our recommendations. Like if we're both like, yeah, well, it doesn't really matter. Then, you know, people would take that uh, away appropriately versus being like, well, they just said this and it must be fact grade A recommendation. And uh, also I thought it would be uh, kind of fun because people ask, what well, do we disagree about? So we're going to manufacture some disagreements here and, uh, <laughs> and see what happens. I'm actually curious to see what happens when you we get to something we do agree on. Like how do we
2: <laughs> How do we fake, actually fake a disagreement or find something yeah, yeah. Even, I, I mean it would effectively end up being like us trying to poke holes on our own yeah play out: of, yeah. which
1: is good that's useful all right so here are the rules if you will so it's five minutes per question we have 13 questions so you do the quick math on that you know you guys are going to be here for a while you can you know come back to this at a later date you don't have to do it all in one setting five minutes per question the lead person gets two minutes to make their argument they have to clearly state yes or no. So I've rephrased some of these questions to make them more yes or no, or like make people make you take a stand. So you get two minutes and the other person gets two minutes uh, to argue the opposite. And then the lead person gets the final word. They get a one minute rebuttal. I don't know. This is a loose program. So I, <laughs> we're going to see how strictly we hold to that, adhere to that five minutes thing. Uh, but we will alternate who goes first uh, one way or the other. Are you, uh, are you ready?
2: Sure. One caveat compared to the great debates articles that are published in that uh, American Journal of Clinical Nutrition is that those are obviously people have time to uh, you know prep and uh, reference things and things like that and so these are uh, questions that we have not spent a ton of time preparing for or we're not going to have like tons of references and stuff like that immediately. Oh, speak so, speak for
1: yourself like. because I've been prepping for this my whole life <laughs> and you shared this <laughs> shared this with me ninety seconds ago. <laughs> yeah. So uh, good luck. All right first question austin you will lead this one all right is consuming soy protein bad
2: i'm going to go with um overall my my position is going to be no i think that you can come at this from a variety of different angles the most common kind of an, an admittedly somewhat annoying response to these kind of things is the whole just immediate uh, compared to what knee-jerk uh, response of of what are you replacing in the diet. Although, to be fair, that is an important consideration when you are looking at any sort of dietary intervention or change is, you know, these things cannot really be viewed in isolation outside of a few rare examples. So like, yeah, uh, trans fats, straight up, doesn't matter. <laughs> those are Those are going to be harmful. So here, it's always helpful to have some context of what you're replacing with. But I think if I'm And I also don't claim to be an expert on the overall body of literature for soy protein, but based on my understanding of it, based on what I have seen, I think that in general the direction of effect for most um, you know studies on this, or replacement trials, or things like that, looking at various health effects, be it related to lipid, blood lipid management, cardiovascular disease risk, certain forms of cancer risk, I I believe it's been examined in the context of prostate cancer risk and things like that. Overall, um, points towards a direction of benefit. I'm not aware of um, a clear or consistent signal of harm. I know that a lot of people in this scene have concerns about endocrine type effects, and uh, while those can be um, described in you know petri dish type settings, I don't believe that they have been shown to have uh, you know clinical effects that would be adverse particularly you know people worry about isoflavones and and other kind of like phytoestrogens having um, estrogenic type effects particularly in, in men and I do not believe that there's any clear evidence showing that those to be harmful at any reasonable level of intake. I don't know if it's been examined in terms of like uh, highly concentrated, highly processed forms. So, if somebody was living exclusively on like soy protein isolate, if that's been examined at extremely high doses, but rather when people are consuming typical amounts on the diet from whole food sources like tofu, for example, um, any significant harm has been observed, but rather there's been directionality towards benefit. Uh, again, varying depending on what food you're replacing, um, uh, replacing it with, but especially in the cardiovascular sense. So overall, I don't have concerns about this. I actually consume tofu, you know, not infrequently. It's fine. Um, and yeah, I think that's my overall summary.
1: Yeah, that was a pretty good, uh, it was a little over two minutes, but you know, we're not going to hold that against you here <laughs> on this first great debates in health and fitness. <laughs> All right. So my rebuttal, while I will agree that in general, The consumption of soy protein in most westernized cultures does likely have a uh, sort of direction arrow towards benefit. Um, particularly because soy protein is a complete essential amino acid or a complete protein because it's got nine, all nine essential amino acids. The digestibility of soy protein is very high, 95% compared to like whey protein, for example. Um, it has no cholesterol, no lactose in it. It does seem to lower atherogenic lipoproteins like LDL, for example, does reduce the risk of type 2 diabetes uh, when you look at people who consume uh, soy protein and sources of soy protein regularly compared to those who don't. The big issue here, in my estimation, based on my research, has to do with consumption of raw soybeans so those have, who have that have not been processed, cooked, etc, they may have a negative impact on the gut, like many raw foods potentially could if you do not cook them appropriately, for example, and also that seems to be uh in, in keeping with your explanation of uh you know various cancers or various endocrine sort of issues. It seems like if you consume a lot of raw soybean, for example it's been um Uh, connected with hypothyroidism, uh, particularly in infants, um, which you can sort of correct by increasing their iodine intake, but it is currently recommended against those with uh, it's contraindicated for consumption in infants with congenital hypothyroidism. But uh, yes, I will argue that yes, it could be potentially be harmful (laughs) in uh, isolated settings. Although I would agree that in general, uh, particularly in humans consuming soy proteins that are either have been processed or like an actual soy protein supplement, the benefit arrow or directionality of that arrow seems to be beneficial. And lastly, i like to cite some evidence. Uh, A recent meta-analysis of 41 studies that investigated total testosterone and estrogen levels in over 1,000 men uh, compared to their soy protein or isoflavone uh, sort of intake showed no significant correlation with either. So, just that's what people in general tend to worry about first. And then they're like, okay, but what about everything else? And it's like, as long as you're not eating a ton, you're not eating a ton of raw soybeans. This is uh, likely a health promoting in general. Do you have a one minute rebuttal?
2: Uh sure. I think that um, you know the the way you uh, took it is to consuming raw soybeans, which is not necessarily specific to the consumption of soy protein. Like that's not a harmful effect of the protein in particular. And I would just generalize to say, you know, I wouldn't recommend um, feeding infants like. Raw chicken or underprepared, <laughs> you know, uh, any number of things that are underprepared or in inappropriately prepared, and so that's just like a general principle. And so it's it, you know, most people who are consuming beans, um, I would say maybe maybe in the in the US, if I had to guess, are probably buying it uh, in canned form, which is pre you know cooked. Um, but for those who buy uh, dry beans, um, pretty much all of them need to be appropriately prepared, soaked, boiled, whatever the case is. Um, to reduce, to reduce their risk of harm. And so that would also include um, uh, soybeans in particular. And it's a little odd to think if, I don't know that anybody is, but if people really are feeding a ton of <laughs> raw soybeans to their infants, uh, odd choice, but uh, you know.
1: Yeah. Don't come to us for like what to feed your kids, not our, not our expertise. All right. We're off to a, we're off to a, a smashing start here. Uh, question number two, should pregnant women be able to do exercise that makes them breathe heavily? Now, this was from, again, my Instagram, Ask Me Anything, basically said my partner's OB told her to avoid any sort of exercise that makes her breathe breathe heavily. And so I rephrased this to a yes or no type of thing, and I will lead. And I will argue that, yes, pregnant women should be able to do exercise that makes them breathe heavily in general, the current guidelines for, um, physical activity during pregnancy mimic almost to a T, the current physical activity guidelines for adults in America. So that means twice weekly resistance training. That means doing uh, somewhere between 500 to 1000 minutes of conditioning, which would be 150 to 300 minutes of moderate uh, intensity conditioning versus or or in addition, or some combination of 700 or 75 uh, 75 to 150 minutes of vigorous intensity conditioning. And some of that stuff is going to make you breathe heavily and i I don't see like an absolute contraindication to anything that makes somebody breathe heavily, uh, particularly in the in the context of pregnancy overall. There is this perceived risk in pregnancy that doing sort of uh vigorous or intense sort of exercise may be you know uniquely harmful, but that does not seem to have been repeated or found in the literature and in this case is one of those things where I start thinking the absence of evidence is in fact pointing towards the evidence of absence, because again, and I go to this argument all the time, that because CrossFit is so popular, and there have been a lot of pregnant women doing CrossFit, or derivations thereof, whether it's strength training, or, or even just uh, high intensity interval training, um, you would expect bodies, you would expect a <laughs> lot of bad outcomes, you'd yeah. expect a lot of bad outcomes to be in the case reports, and there's just, it's just not there. Um, rather, I think the real risk to exercise in pregnancy is that it's under prescribed, And in the case that it is prescribed, it's underdosed, just like this. Oh, you can't breathe heavily. The last caveat I'll make is that, yes, there are certain conditions, certain situations, high-risk pregnancies where maybe exercise is uh, either uh, should be tempered or, in fact, potentially contraindicated. But that would be a very unique situation that should not be part of, like, a general guideline to just, hey, don't do anything that makes you breathe heavily because that effectively would put somebody on bed rest. You know, like, (laughs) don't do anything that exerts yourself. So that's, that's my take on this.
2: Yeah, so I'm going to have to stretch a little bit here to disagree with you, as you might imagine. So kind of like the last example where with soy protein, you spent like the first minute agreeing with me. I'm going to, in general, uh, agree with what you are saying that um, overall for your kind of average risk uh, uh, patient uh, who is pregnant, that they should be able to do exercise, including that uh, which makes them breathe heavily without incurring undue risk. the way I'm going to have to stretch this is by reaching into either some of those high risk scenarios or talking about scenarios where somebody may have um, uh, uh, maybe breathing heavily that is indicative of a problem to be p- to be paid attention to. And so those high risk situations, again, I'm not a, an, an obstetrician or a, a mater- maternal fetal medicine expert. My recollection of a lot of those high risk scenarios is um, uh, getting pretty old at this point, and so I would defer to my uh, wife on that one. But Instead, the scenarios I am more comfortable with are the causes of shortness of breath that are cause for concern or being alarming. This is something I'm very familiar with and deal with on a daily basis. And so I guess the way I would come at this is, You know, there's a spectrum of, quote unquote, breathing heavily, and it is possible for patients to have, you know, disproportionate shortness of breath with a given activity more than you would expect, um, even if somebody is not a habitual exerciser. And just a few, like, immediate things that might come to mind that could lead somebody um, to have disproportionate, you know, heavy breathing when they are uh, pregnant with with activity would be maybe they have a uh, worse than usual level of anemia, and they're having symptoms from their anemia uh, leading to shortness of breath with activity. There are also a variety of cardiac complications in the setting of pregnancy that can lead to uh shortness of breath these can be things like pericpartum cardiomyopathy this can be a a situation where a woman who's pregnant can develop heart failure um this can happen you know towards the end you know uh, later stages of pregnancy or even post postpartum can 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 develop then too and disproportionate or increasing progressive shortness of breath in that situation be a source for concern there can be uh, coronary artery problems like a dissection in the coronary arteries and then additionally in pregnancy um, it's a what's thought what's what's called a hypercoagulable state, meaning they're more prone to developing blood clots, uh, and those blood clots can develop and go to the lungs and present as a pulmonary embolism, a blood clot in the lungs that can manifest with shortness of breath. And so, you know, shortness of breath is something that I would be paying attention to. And is it like, does this shortness of breath make sense? Is it uh, proportionate? Is it commensurate with the type of activity that I'm had that I'm doing? Or is it like really disproportionate? Um, am I more short of breath than I would expect for what I'm doing? Or am I having, you know, shortness of breath at rest or something like that? And those would be things that would raise potential concern for some of these other, you know, uh, causes like anemia, like heart failure, like uh, uh, lung issues, among many others, uh, down the list of causes of shortness of breath.
1: Yep. Uh, my rebuttal is that uh, while I agree with your uh, sort of uh, amendment to my statement, <laughs> I, I would say that those are not unique conditions to pregnancy in general. And so all of those would be in general uh, contradictions to exercise uh Because you need to be evaluated by a physician in pregnancy there are some additional contraindications um, to exercise but they don't really have anything to do with respiratory rate rather it's things like abnormal blood loss or um, particular positions of the fetus uh, particular other complications that uh, generate high-risk pregnancy but all of those things you stated are yeah if you had those even if you weren't pregnant you would need to be see a physician also you said a phrase in there and i know you didn't mean it this way but you said pregnant with exercise and damn it i like that just <laughs> i want to be pregnant with exercise like let, let it overtake my body all right i i still think we're, we're going well here all right question number three austin you're going to lead on this one are deadlifts a good choice for hypertrophy
2: um, okay, so this is going to be another one where you can come at it from a similar angle that we talked about with soy protein in terms of like compared with what alternative. However, if we think about the uh, kind of criteria or the factors that you would want to line up to optimize a hypertrophic response to a given uh, exercise, I'm going to say that deadlifts are probably not a great choice if hypertrophy is exclusively the goal. Um, I think that deadlifts, you know, one some. Aside from just looking cool, feeling cool, people like to lift really heavy weights. The absolute load is oftentimes the goal of people who are performing deadlifts, in, in in terms of maximizing their strength. However, if if I'm thinking about deadlifts for hypertrophy, I'm thinking about what musculature is really being involved, and a lot of it, you know, aside from just holding the bar, um, we're using the the back, trying to hold that relatively rigid and extending the hips. You're extending the knees a little bit. Really, none of the joints of the body are traveling through a particularly long range of motion, which is something that I would prefer to have um, from a hypertrophy, you know, oriented movement or exercise. And admittedly, there are some data looking at you know partial range of motion exercises for for hypertrophy hypertrophy type responses. I think a little bit more of that data is in the upper body. But you know, if I were looking at optimizing hypertrophic response, I'm trying to get the biggest kind of stimulus in terms of hypertrophy with the lowest fatigue cost, um, you know, kind of as an optimization problem. So I can do the most of it and, uh, kind of accumulate that benefit over time. And so when I think about the trade-offs with deadlifts, you can load them pretty heavy. You can incur, uh, you know, relatively speaking, a higher amount of fatigue while not really moving any of your joints through a particularly long range of motion. Um, you know, Regardless of whether it's conventional or sumo, I suppose you could, you know, contort a, a, a variation of uh, like that dude deadliest lift on Instagram who does like you know 36 inch deficit deadlifts or something like that. But still, I can think of better choices um, that would uh, load. You could load a variety of musculature through a longer range of motion at a lower fatigue cost, and then be able to perform higher doses of that uh, uh, training. Um, so I think that that's going to be my my main position on it.
1: All right. Uh, While I acknowledge the limitations of the deadlift with respect to range of motion, with respect to fatigue generation, while also acknowledging that the existing data comparing hypertrophy outcomes for for free weights versus machines basically says that the same uh, single joint exercises versus multi-joint exercises, very similar, maybe perhaps in the favor of isolation exercises in, in many cases, I still think that deadlifts can be a great hypertrophy exercise in particular for the uh, musculature of the lower back and the posterior chain to include the glutes the hamstrings the adductor magnus etc uh Especially if we kind of expand the definition of deadlifts to include Romanian deadlifts or stiff-legged deadlifts or other deadlift variations, because a good hypertrophy program is likely to include both compound and isolation exercises. So on a leg day, for example, someone is likely to squat and do some sort of hinge or deadlift movement before doing some more isolation exercises. Um, so that would not be a unique or you know, rare hypertrophy program. And so I think that the deadlifts can be a great hypertrophy exercise, though I would not recommend doing them to the exclusion of isolation exercises, much to your, po- much to your point. Um, and I guess if I had to pick a deadlift variation that I think likely contributes the most to hypertrophy, if you had to pick one, it'd be the Romanian deadlift with a stiff legged deadlift. Um, and, and again, it, hypertrophy of what in this case would be the posterior chain and, and muscles of the lower back.
2: Yeah, I think that if I if if my training were oriented purely around the goal of hypertrophy, and I were concerned with hypertrophy of the gluteal musculature or of the hamstring musculature, you know, I would be probably doing more uh, uh, squatting and something like leg curls and things like that. Various other things that I could uh, again take the, that musculature through a longer range of motion at a at a lower fatigue cost. And so I, I think I'm coming back to a similar kind of um, aspect of that op- optimization problem. I'm not sure that. Um, including deadlifts in that program will, would have a, a really noticeable augmenting effect on the hypertrophic outcome, but rather they would also make me better at deadlifting, which is a perfectly reasonable outcome to, to seek from a program. Um, but if, if the program is purely restricted to, I just want to have the largest muscle cross-sectional area. Um, I don't don't think that they would feature very prominently in that training program, particularly at heavier loads. I think that, you know, if you're talking about doing an RDL for a set of eight to 12 reps or something like that, that's totally fine. But certainly I'm not going to be doing like, you know, conventional deadlift doubles at a nine RPE or something like that.
1: Yeah, Astute listeners will notice that neither of us mentioned the word injury or injury risk uh, in our answers, because that is not really a consideration compared to other types (laughs) of resistance training. All right. Moving on, I will lead with this one. Are seed oils detrimental to health? Uh, My take on this is no, seed oils are not detrimental to health. Seed oils are a type of vegetable oil that are made from plants. Seed oils, as their name implies, are made from seeds and include soy, canola, peanut, and corn oil. Other vegetable oils like olive oil and avocado oil are made from fruits not seeds. Uh, Seed oils contain relatively high proportions of linoleic acid, which is also abbreviated LA. And in general, those that claim seed oils are bad often blame this linoleic acid or LA, which is a type of omega-6 fatty acid. And people associate bad effects of seed oils from this omega-6 fatty acid. The biggest study we have on linoleic acid or linoleic acid consumption in humans to date is titled Biomarkers of Dietary Omega-6 Fatty Acids and Incident Cardiovascular Disease and Mortality, this was published in 2019, they found that in 30 prospective studies with medians of follow-up ranging from 2.5 to 31.9 years, there were uh, over 15,000 cardiovascular events that occurred among uh, nearly 70,000 participants, higher levels of linoleic, uh, linoleic acid, L.A., were significantly associated with lower risks of total cardiovascular disease, cardiovascular mortality, and ischemic stroke. So in general, uh, seed oils don't seem to be associated negatively with heart disease um, and things like that. And they are high in polyunsaturated fatty acids, PUFAs. And to date, the studies investigating human PUFA consumption, particularly when they are included in a diet to replace saturated fats from red meat and animal products, consistently show a reduction in heart disease risk. Uh, Indeed. The data cited, if any at all, from individuals claiming that seed oils are harmful uh, to human health are actually from rats or are mechanistic in nature. They don't tend to be from human clinical studies. Um, That all being said, the biggest source of uh, vegetable oil consumption in the United States and thus seed oil consumption in the United States is from ultra processed foods. So if somebody wanted to make a blanket recommendation to reduce seed oil consumption or vegetable oil consumption via reducing ultra processed food consumption, I'd be on board with that. But to replace seed oils in an otherwise health-promoting dietary pattern, which by definition would have a limited amount of ultra-processed foods, I don't think that's going to get people anywhere.
2: Yeah. So um, as somebody who has made many of these same arguments myself, I'm going to be similarly uh, stretching for a disagreement, but I think I could probably pull it off. So uh, the first point is one that you actually alluded to at the end there. So I think that, you know, we tend to prefer not looking at nutrients uh or, or in in isolation, and so when we think about the most common source of these foods coming from ultra processed foods, that is in fact uh what I would actually argue is the main mediator of harm is the foods that they often come packaged in rather than their biological effect themselves the other The other way that I'm thinking about this is that. You know I, i've given a lot of lectures on you know blood lipids and things like that and commonly we talk about you know our high fat diets or low fat diets superior and, and it's neither because when those have been studied um, everything ends up coming out in the wash because there are different types of fats in the diet you can have saturated or polyunsaturated trans whatever the case is and if you just compare high versus low you're just throwing everything in the wash and it all just comes out null basically and so we recognize that different types of dietary fat or fatty acids um themselves can have different biological effects. And then additionally, there are different biological effects from the food sources that that contain them. I've already talked about the food sources, the ultra processed stuff, so we'll set that aside for now. But as you mentioned, there are multiple different types of seed oils. So when we look at the composition of canola oil and some of its contents, canola or rapeseed as it's um, known as in, in other parts of the world, um, it has a different composition than corn, than peanut, than soy, than you know many other types. And so I think it's plausible that different different types of seed oils may have different biological effects. And I think that if you just compare all different seed oils and throw it all in the bucket, then you might bias towards the null, basically. So I think it's plausible that you might have different biological effects among different uh, individual uh, types of uh, these uh, these oils, these fatty acids. The other uh, side of this is the human that is consuming them. And it is also plausible that um, there may be a subset of people with perhaps some kind of, you know, genetic polymorphism in their metabolic pathways that might lead them to be uh, susceptible to a particular effect of a particular one of these seed oils. That such a population has not really been identified, but I think it is plausible that there may be either some of these oils that have, you know, relative comparatively, you know, more beneficial slash less beneficial, if I wanted to frame it that way, um, effects. And that also would be filtered through the lens of the individual in terms of some people may have more of a response to a particular type or less. I do not say that to give credence to people who just say, I stopped eating seed oils and I feel better because that is not a a rigorous way of analyzing this question because it does not account for the food sources, for food replacement, for overall energy intake, for all sorts of things. It would take a lot more rigorous approach to see on an individual level or on a, a kind of a population subset level that this particular type of seed oil has this effect compared with that one. And I suspect actually some of that data may have been, may have been done. It would not surprise me to find data like that. Um, but the other side would be like people with this particular polymorphism may respond with maybe, I don't know, just making this up to be clear, uh, maybe more of an inflammatory response than somebody else in response to consuming a particular food. I find that to be at least a plausible um, uh, possibility.
1: Sure. Uh, So acknowledging that there may be some currently unknown genetic polymorphism that may uh, set somebody up to have a a worsening lipid profile or worsening health outcomes due to particular oil consumption. Setting that aside, I think the evidence to date overall suggests that seed oils do not confer a uniquely risky, reliable harm to human health. Uh, Although again, we acknowledge that The most common way that people consume vegetable oils and therefore seed oils is through highly tasty, highly palatable, very cheap, very available, high calorie, ultra-processed foods that aren't very filling and people tend to overeat them. And that, the energy imbalance, tends to be the big driver here with respect to negative associations in seed oil consumption. I wish we could give you like another rebuttal, but it's just like I feel like we're just gonna agree at the end. (laughs) 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 Yep, pretty much. All right. Moving on to the next question, question number five, can one build a great physique with primarily powerlifting programming? Austin, you get to lead.
2: (laughs) Um, Okay. So I think that uh, I'm going to take the pro position on this, the, 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 I, Um, I I think that uh, whatever a great physique is, is, you know, Pretty subjective, uh, and 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 you know you can you can imagine a lot of people who look at physiques in the bodybuilding scene and find it to be grotesque. Um, so so setting that subjectivity aside, I think you know a powerlifting program is also itself kind of a somewhat nebulous thing. If this is implying that you know it is just all you can do is SBD, then that's one way of looking at this. But we have talked at length about our preferred approach to training, even for powerlifting, our preferred outcome, and have discussed that it should involve a uh, fair amount of strength-oriented you know, oriented training. It should incorporate some uh, hypertrophy-oriented training. It should incorporate some conditioning. And so I think you know, if I wanted to cheat this question a little bit and say, well, our preferred style of powerlifting programming would incorporate all these elements and could lead when Uh, combined with, you know, uh, um, an ideal other uh, lifestyle habits, you know, your diet's dialed in, you're sleeping appropriately, things like that, um, that you can generate a a great physique um, within the limitations of whatever your, your genetics will allow. If I wanted to be more rigid to this question and say, can you do that with just sbd i think you probably can over a long enough time span and with a diet that's dialed in um there may be some you know relative deficiencies if you're looking at this through the lens of like what would get you on a olympia stage or something like that i don't expect you to have you know incredible calves from training sbd all the time for a decade uh speaking from experience although i don't particularly care about care about calf development so there's that so so i think that you know recognizing multiple layers of kind of subjectivity and squishiness here i think that. Um, uh, even if you wanted to go highly specific, SBD, you can generate a fair amount of hypertrophy if you uh, train for long enough, consistently enough, and and have your diet and recovery and stuff like that kind of appropriately managed. I don't see a reason why um, uh, why this would be not possible.
1: Uh, While well, I agree in general, particularly that a powerlifting, quote unquote, focused program can produce ample amounts of hypertrophy, the problem here, I think, is the artifact Of most good strength programs overlapping heavily with good hypertrophy programs, in that a good strength program is likely to produce hypertrophy or should, in our estimation, and a good hypertrophy program should improve strength in the lifts that are trained. For example, both types of programs use resistance training to load the musculoskeletal system through a relatively large range of motion, using a variety of rep ranges, and employing similar proximities to failure in order to generate adaptations. So, those two things kind of being part and parcel to both programs gives you similar outcomes. That said, this sort of aesthetic quality or, you know, impressive physique is likely kind of tied to or anchored to increased amounts of hypertrophy. And I think that a true powerlifting focused program gives up uh, a number of resources, training resources to actually train uh, more isolation exercises and muscle groups that don't really get trained by SBD and SBD variants to your point calves for example uh muscles of the upper back involved in lots of rowing for example biceps uh, triceps even to some degree forearms i mean it really just depends you know what the definition of an aesthetic physique actually is (laughs) uh, for sure but i think that there's just inherent differences with how a hypertrophy focus program is laid out compared to a strength focus program though the overlap kind of creates this artificial Sort of well, they kind of they do both, and it's like well, they can, but which one does it better? And I think if you're just concerned with how do I look, and what your goal is, uh, if that involves a significant amount of muscular hypertrophy over strength and and force production, then your program is going to look different than somebody who's more keyed up on strength.
2: Yeah. I mean, I guess if I, if I were forced to stretch myself and rebut that, I would just read the question again, because the question was, can one build a great physique? To which I'd say, yeah,
0: sure.
1: (laughs) Yes. The, the sort of difference, the difference in how people respond is, you know, mostly attributed to genetics, how people respond to a particular program in addition to their environment, which includes nutrition, sleep, things of that nature. And so a lot of it, particularly when studied in larger populations is going to come out in the wash and it's going to look like things are equal, but that doesn't really speak to the individual and what they should do. Yeah. All right. We just end up agreeing, but uh, we'll, we'll find <laughs> we'll find something. All right. Is stretching beneficial for strength training? I will lead on this one. And my response is no, stretching is uh, in general, not beneficial for strength training. But first, we have to define like, what is stretching? What are we talking about? And particularly what I'm talking about is generalized stretching. So things that are not specific to the movement or movements that you're trying to improve active range of motion in. So for example, somebody might desire improved flexibility with respect to the squat and they're doing things like figure four or like toe touches or like stretching their hamstrings in a way that does not look in at all like a squat and stretching like strength is specific to the range of motion, to the type of muscular contraction, to the velocity of the contraction, all these sorts of things. And so generalized stretching is unlikely to improve the ability to get in a very specific posture compared to adopting graded doses in that uh, sort of uh, posture. In addition, stretching does not appear to reduce injury risk compared with equal uh, doses of other physical activity, doesn't seem to reduce soreness, if anything, it might increase soreness, particularly if people are a little overzealous or vigorous with their stretching. And with respect to performance, the data on stretching shows effectively a negative, if any sort of outcome. And so while I acknowledge there's some mechanism for stretch mediated hypertrophy, that is, people engaging in sort of stretching activities where the muscle is at a long muscle length and you can get some hypertrophic response out of that. That's in general in untrained individuals and a very small uh, sort of amount of hypertrophy compared to actual resistance training. So, again, my answer is stretching in general is not beneficial for strength
2: training. All right. Um, so, I'll, let's see how I can do this. <laughs> I think that uh, there, I, I, you, you anticipated that some of the evidence that could be cited in response is that for um, the stretch mediated hi- hypertrophy, which is certainly a thing that has been shown. And so if the question is, is stretching beneficial for it? It's like, well, there's a benefit. So that checks one one potential box there. The other is that I think that the uh, purported harms of stretching um, have not necessarily been communicated super um accurately, I guess. And and so to, what, I, what I mean is that um, the claims around stretching leading to a, you know, a significant reduction in force production and stuff like that. And so nobody who ever wants to produce force, like, you know, lift a big weight should ever stretch. I think that that's been probably a bit oversold and in a way that is due to poor generalization of where that comes from. So my understanding of those data are that it is like, people who are doing like near end range sustained stretches for very long periods of time, like far longer than any actual reasonable person. (laughs) If they felt like stretching a little bit before their workout, you know, most people, if they're going to do a stretch, they might hold it for, I don't know, 10 seconds, 20 seconds, probably not a whole lot longer than that. We're talking like well over a minute or minutes of holding like a pretty sustained uh, position um, with, with some uh, uh, association, I believe with some reduction in force production. So it's just kind of like, you know, inappropriately generalizing some of that and, and making people feel like if they, if, if their muscle is taken to a long length, it's not going to be able to contract for the set that they lift afterwards. So I don't think that that's accurate. Um, and then finally, the other thing is that, um, some people, it just makes them feel good. And if it makes them feel good, and I do not buy the, you know, purported harms of short duration, non-specific or even specific, you know, if you want to do some bodyweight squatting and stuff like that to get into those positions to um, help you feel more comfortable or just feel generally better, get your joints warmed up and things like that, if you feel the need to do that. I think that the, um, I don't know that I can claim massive benefits from such a thing, but I certainly do not suspect there are as significant of harms as has historically been been communicated around stretching as it relates to strength performance and then i tie that together with potential you know stretch mediated hypertrophy if you're into that kind of thing even though i don't buy that that's a huge effect especially for people who are lifting weights <laughs> um then all around i'm like um it's rather than being null to harmful i'm wondering if it's null to beneficial on a kind of more of an individual level uh, basis
1: Yeah, I would accept the sort of argument that there's probably some sort of dose dependent relationship between stretching volume and like performance sort of decrease. And uh, yes, to your point, most of the data uh, on performance is like acute, like what happens right after you get done stretching with like max force production, which is not really valid to how most people do this. So in, in acknowledging that, my biggest argument against stretching for strength performance is that it takes up time. And that time would likely better spent, be better spent training, either doing more lifting or potentially conditioning to augment the lifting or having shorter gym sessions so you could spend more time outside of the gym, recovering, eating appropriately, engaging in other sort of behaviors that bring you great joy rather than this potentially null, perhaps harmful, maybe beneficial if you stretch it. <laughs> Literally, that's the pun. Um, I just don't really see a good use for it unless the stretching is very specific to what you want to do.
2: Let's be real, most of these people are on their phones,
1: <laughs> yeah, that's true. that's true, yeah, we should do a study with like uh to see how much time spent on the phone versus like one r m performance over time all right like I think it's <laughs> inversely associated yeah. all right, Question number seven, we're over halfway through. Should people over forty paying for a coronary artery calcium score go on a statin if that score is greater than zero, Austin, you get to lead on this one,
2: uh no. Um, my position on this is going to be as it tends to be with most um, isolated test results. There are some test results for sure that you can interpret in just isolation of like, I get this number, I automatically know this is like very bad. Um, But this one I think is a, one that falls in the much more common bucket of if you give me a any kind of test result this happens on our forum all the time people say here's here are my labs what do you think and i'm like i need some context here tell me who you are tell me your life tell me your habits tell me all this other stuff and that can help me to frame it better same way same when we you know when we do consultations for people about their testosterone. Here's my testosterone number. What do you think? And it's like, I need to know a lot more about you to be able to deliver an informed opinion. And so we know that um, coronary artery calcium, particularly that detected on a regular CAC scan, which is different than a um, coronary CT angiogram. These are two different kinds of scans. Um, but a regular CAC score that you might get on a regular coronary artery calcium scan uh, is something that is not as specific for significant you know, coronary artery disease, meaning that there are other reasons why somebody's coronary artery calcium might be greater than zero uh, that is not necessarily the same thing as somebody having significant calcified plaque within their coronary arteries. We know, for example, when patients, um, you know, we have like endurance exercisers um, who can uh, increase their coronary artery calcium. calcium. Um, We also have, uh, uh, we we know that when, when patients are actually on statins themselves, we know that coronary artery calcium can increase despite overall cardiovascular risk decreasing. And so that's why that's a situation where we don't necessarily panic about that because we know we have you know, probably more evidence than anything else in all of medicine that when patients are on those medicines, that their cardiovascular risk is 20, 25, 30 percent lower than it would be without it, even if that score increases a little bit, and that's thought to be due to a stabilization effect um, of those medicines on the plaque, meaning calcified plaque tends to be. A bit more stable and a bit less prone to rupture and causing a, a heart attack compared with non-calcified soft plaque. Um, and so I think that just interpreting these tests is a bit more complicated than just score not zero, take med. Um, there's, a, there's a bit more conversation that's involved uh, uh, around this in practice. Uh,
1: and doing the same things that you've been having to do on my previous response, I will have to stretch <laughs> my answer here. Uh, so if we assume that someone got a CAC test, due to indeterminate risk based on a standard lipid profile, and then their score was greater than zero, I think you could make an argument for taking a statin to reduce the cumulative exposure to higher levels of atherogenic lipoproteins, so high levels of LDL, triglycerides, etc. And although the data may not be clear that in a person with indeterminate risk taking a statin, it actually benefits them for reducing heart disease risk I think mechanistically, it likely makes sense that it reduces their their heart disease risk. And further, there's relatively low risks for being on statins. And so you could make a case for someone who's trying to do everything within their power to lower their heart disease risk that this might be an acceptable choice for them, even if the data is sort of indeterminate at this point.
2: Uh, my rebuttal to your rebuttal will be similar to one of your strategies that you used uh, previously that... <laughs> It does. In that case, it doesn't even matter if you had the CAC score, because just being on the medicine will lower your risk. It's just if you are at lower baseline risk, you will get less absolute benefit, but your risk will still be lower compared to if you weren't on the medicine, in which case your score didn't matter. You could just be like, well, I'm going to take this medicine to lower my risk, uh, regardless of whether my score was 0, 1, 99, or 500. Um, any of those patients will have a lower risk on the med than not.
1: Should everybody be taking a statin? Oof,
2: that's a... <laughs> Uh, yeah, you didn't put this question in the list. No, yeah, that's
1: a. <laughs> I don't I do, have.
0: A, I, that's
2: a. That's a two. That's not a two-minute answer. <laughs> no, I do think though, if you're if you listen to that
1: and you're like, hmm, I am intrigued. You should talk to your physician about that. That would be reasonable to kind of go through your particular medical history, your particular family medical history, and sort of what sort of absolute risk reduction, like you said, Austin, somebody might expect based on their age, risk factors, family history, current medical history, and uh, things of that nature. We're not saying that we should put statins in the water necessarily. However, there may be people who don't necessarily meet guidelines criteria for like being on a statin, but might actually see some benefit for it.
2: Yeah. And admittedly, in my opinion, the criteria are bad. <laughs> that's a that's a hot take. But um and, and what I mean is that the criteria are based on an estimation of people's 10-year risk. Certainly some patients are not um, uh, don't fall within the types of populations on which those calculators were validated. And so those 10 year risks were, can, for some people might be inappropriately extrapolated, but even for those who it does apply to, um, most people are not as concerned with their 10 year risk of having a heart attack as they are compared with their lifetime risk. And so there is a bit of a movement to shift towards calculation of 30 year risk, um, which provides a bit longer of a time horizon. Admittedly, that will lead to more people being quote-unquote eligible, but that's the way life works, is that risk increases with uh, you know age and cumulative exposure to these risk factors. The longer you have elevated blood lipids, the longer you have elevated blood pressure, the longer you have an elevated waist circumference, the longer you have diabetes or smoke or any of these things, this is cumulative lifetime risk. So the earlier we can get it under control, the better um and so just be cautious if people are you know dismissing your risk based on just a ten year estimate alone, especially if you're young right
1: mm-hmm. yeah. yep okay, do we agree? do we disagree I don't know, <laughs> let us know on the feedback. <laughs> This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. At Pioneer Belts, they have belts for all applications. If you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt, check out our podcast episode number 219. Most people will do best with a four inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick, either single prong or lever, depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer. Pioneer has industry exclusive micro adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools. They also make custom belts to your specs depending on what you want. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to generalleathercraft.com and tell them barbell medicine sent you. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. After going to the gym, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? For me, I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature, maybe both. Whether we're talking about training, a dietary change, or just life, The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/slash BarbellPod today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp
2: H-E-L-P.com/slash BarbellPod for 10% off your first month. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code Program for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code Program.
1: All right, next question. Should someone take vitamin D if they live in an area where there isn't much sun exposure? Uh, I will lead on this one. I will respond no um and let me give you a little background on vitamin d so vitamin d has two forms vitamin d2 which is ergo calciferol and vitamin d3 which is cholecalciferol. only vitamin d3 is produced in the human skin and is the form that is naturally found in animals uh both these forms are inactive and must undergo two activation steps step one is in the liver step two is in uh, the kidney um that said the vast majority of the world isn't getting enough sun exposure daily because most people work indoors we're born indoors get educated indoors work indoors and so they don't tend to make enough vitamin d yet not everyone is vitamin d deficient so there's you know uh, a lot of nuance here not only when you're outside like how long you're outside how much of your skin is exposed to the sun what uh, is your skin color um how much clothes uh clothing are you wearing and then how much vitamin D are you consuming in the diet? And also, perhaps most importantly, what is your disease uh, state right now? So in general, people with more medical conditions, more disease tend to have lower vitamin D levels because the most uh, of the pathogenesis of diseases have some uh, inflammatory component, which tends to reduce vitamin D levels. That said, people's vitamin D sort of status relating to health is highly variable. There's just different amounts of sensitivity to vitamin D, different amount of vitamin D protein that carries vitamin D around the body, um, things of that nature. So supplementing with a vitamin D, taking a vitamin D supplement in general is not going to cover all your bases here. In addition, there's a risk of contamination with uh, taking a vitamin D supplement, a risk of toxicity if you take very high doses. Um, So in general, the supplement for me is probably not the lever I would pull rather from like a public health standpoint. And in general, I would recommend food fortification which we're already doing, uh, access to places to be active outside so people can uh, get some sun exposure while being active. That's like a double whammy there. In addition to, um, in general, consuming a health-promoting dietary pattern, which would also have um, a decent amount of vitamin D. There's no real evidence-based recommendations for how much sunlight exposure people should get, but in general, the current consensus is five to 15 minutes per day between the hours of 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. during the spring, summer, and fall. Uh, And then still would recommend wearing sunscreen because while, yes, you're going to produce less vitamin D while wearing sunscreen, you're also going to lower your risk of the problem with too much sun exposure, which is uh, certain forms of skin cancer. So in general, I would not recommend taking a vitamin D supplement, although I acknowledge that there are many recommendations, national recommendations in various countries that do advocate for this. I think that's uh, not really based in evidence, however.
2: All right, time to stretch again. Um, so, so I, um, in general, I agree with you know the majority of, of what you said. I think my answer is not going to be a definitive yes here because there's no substance that I'm going to like universally say people should just take. My answer is going to be you know leaning more towards a towards a maybe, and I think that there's a few ways that you could justify that. I think that um, when it is dosed reasonably, I think the risk is actually super low. Um, so this is not something that I'm going to like blow out of proportion and say, you're going to end up in you know acute liver failure from, you know, contaminated vitamin D. I think that if that happens, it is exceptionally rare. Um, if you take way too much vitamin D, there can be substantial life-threatening harms from it, but that's the case for everything, including, uh, uncooked soybeans, apparently. So I think the answer you know, there's a, there's a, a, in absolute terms, a pretty low risk of taking it. There are some potential plausible mechanisms of benefit I am Remain very skeptical of you know many of the claims around it, including some of the more common ones relating to you know improving quote unquote immunity, reducing risk of infection. We did a research review on uh, a giant meta-analysis on that uh, probably about two years ago that was reported as positive but uh, had a lot of problems, and so I I don't know that I buy that. Um, But there are other contexts, for example, in patients with um, certain either risk for uh, bone disease or established bone disease, certain types of kidney disease, um, to be. There, these are things that, you know, people would likely end up on vitamin D, whether or not the sun was out where they happen to live. And so this is kind of a broader, like maybe, uh, uh, maybe sort of situation. So um, I think the risk is low if people want to take it, if they live in an area where there isn't much sun outside, I would not be super confident that they are highly likely to benefit from said supplementation, even though the risk is relatively low. And there are certainly uh, medical conditions or uh, uh, individual level risks that people might have where that might augment the case for something like that. Somebody who has a strong family history of osteoporosis and fractures and they're thin and frail and things like that. I think that's a reasonable situation to say, you know, we want to make sure that this is, uh, this is, uh, set up, uh, uh, you know, correctly. Um, so I think that that's kind of my bottom line answer is, is it's going to be a maybe um, uh, in, in most areas with a low probable risk and some potential benefit, um, although those benefits are wildly overblown blown by a lot of people, especially when they recommend vitamin D um, at the exclusion of other more well-established interventions. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah I, would, I would agree with your point, uh, particularly the skepticism uh, towards taking supplemental vitamin D and general health benefits. For those who, where the evidence base for prescribing vitamin D is not yet there, which is for most conditions. Yes, there are some conditions where people either have kidney disease, for example, liver disease, uh, already uh, bone disease where taking vitamin D is part of the evidence-based sort of recommendations. But as a general sort of guideline, everybody needs to take vitamin D because it's cold outside, we're not outside, This we don't get a lot of sun. I don't think that that's likely to bolster vitamin D levels, thing one. And thing two, even if it did, I don't think that's really going to change people's health trajectories. So due to the non-zero risk of contamination and people taking way too much, which people do, I am still against generalized vitamin D supplementation. All
2: right. Okay. Yeah. Try to,
1: <laughs> try, try to disagree with that. All right. Okay. This is not a yes or no question. So I think this is us just more arguing, which, uh, fine. I'm here for it. Oh. <laughs> the, que- the question is, what is the underlying mechanism causing delayed onset muscle soreness?
2: Uh, it's been years since I cared enough to, to look into this, um, but there are a variety of both metabolic and structural consequences of uh, vigorous physical activity. For example, you can, um, you know, in, in the muscle itself, when you experience like the muscle burn, you have ATP breakdown into ADP and its uh, byproducts, you have acid production, you have various ions that are produced and shuttled around potassium and, and, and hydrogen ions and, and various things. And those, um, particularly in combination, uh, when present in combination, are thought to uh, 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 generate that feeling of the the burn that you might experience with acute fatigue during exercise. Additionally, depending on the type of exercise, the loading, the magnitude, the dosage, things like that, you can incur... Um, a, a kind of a structural damage to the muscle and not necessarily in a catastrophic way although it certainly can be if you push far enough to develop rhabdomyolysis which i view and describe to people as like end stage delayed onset muscle soreness and so there are various structural proteins that kind of serve to maintain the structural integrity of your muscle fibers um, and in some patients those you know there' are certain patients who have you know diseases that render their uh, their muscles to be a lot more fragile so like patients with muscular dystrophy and things like that that lead them to experience much more of this problem because they can have more damage with less kind of stimulus, less provocation, less exertion, things like that. Um, and so I think for the average person who doesn't have those kind of conditions, when they perform a dosage or a type of activity to which they are generally unaccustomed, the combination of the acute factors can generate some symptoms during exercise and then some of the structural uh, the issues that uh, that injure the structural integrity of your muscle fibers um, can lead to this experience of delayed onset muscle soreness. And when um, it kind of goes too far and precipitates a, a much more significant kind of systemic inflammatory response, then you have kind of uncontrolled muscle breakdown that can lead to rhabdomyolysis um, and and land people in the hospital, potentially with complications. I actually just had two cases of rhabdo uh, last week in the hospital of, of uh, some some young soldiers who were brought out into the field at around somewhere between 12 a.m. and two in the morning. And they got started with their uh, with their training exercises. And then they went for like over 12 hours straight, which they rolled in and they were told me this. And I just said, that is some of the dumbest stuff I've ever heard. And so, yeah, they, uh, they weren't feeling too great. So.
1: Yep. I, uh, I do not in general disagree with your description because that seems to be scientifically accurate, I would summarize that the breakdown of muscle tissue, muscular damage, generates an inflammatory response that is ultimately handled by the immune system. And a compromise at any level, so you're having excess muscular damage like what happens with muscular dystrophy or when the dose of training is far in excess of what somebody can handle, like those soldiers, uh, for, for example. Um, or if you have a problem with the inflammatory response to a sort of challenge um, that might uh, compromise things or an over-exuberant sort of inflammatory response to exercise, that can be problematic. Uh, and or if you have an immune system issue where you are unable to generate a sort of normalized immune response to this sort of challenge, all of those things can influence how much DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness, that you have. Now, a more interesting point with respect to DOMS is like, should you expect or should you val- uh, evaluate the efficacy of a training program based on how sore that you are? And the way I view DOMS in that particular context is that if you are never sore, you never have any muscle soreness, then I suspect that your training is underdosed. Mainly, I, I don't think that DOMS is a sort of indicator of an effective workout, but if you never get it, that seems to me that it's underdosed training. And uh, it'll sort of happen. It'll creep up on you out of nowhere. You're like, oh, it's just a little, it's like an artifact of like training near that sort of limit that uh, uh, of tolerable training load. And so I think it should happen on occasion. Um, the last thing I'll say about this is that because if we're viewing that doms occurs secondary to muscle protein breakdown muscular damage if you will and then the subsequent immune system and inflammatory response um, that also indicates that you are breaking down quite a bit of muscle tissue a lot of muscle protein damage and it seems like for hypertrophy that we don't actually get a net accumulation of increase in muscle mass increase in muscle size muscular hypertrophy uh while we're still breaking down lots of muscle protein. If there's a lot of muscle protein damage, effectively, all of your resources are directed at dealing with that muscle protein damage, not necessarily growing new or more muscle protein. And so if you're sore all the time from a training program and you're like, I should be growing any day now, you can just It needs to go on for a longer period of time where you accommodate to the training program and are not getting a sore, not having as as much muscle protein breakdown so that your recovery resources can actually be directed to generating new or larger uh, muscle proteins um, via muscle protein synthesis, effectively being in the net positive sort of situation. So not really a disagreement, just more of like a and then, if you will.
2: I'm going to add one other thing here because we've discussed this symptom, which is generally a discomfort, a pain, if you will, in very, very biological terms. And so uh, that is unusual for us. And so I have to bring in the caveat that there does appear to be some other influences on the experience of delayed onset muscle soreness. Um, This rang a bell for me uh, of an article that I wrote on the website back in 2018, so like geez, that was five years ago, um, called uh, Fear, Catastrophizing, and Training. And in that article, I cited two papers, and I'll just read this this paragraph uh, from it because it's relevant. So um, in one group of healthy participants who underwent an experimental protocol to induce delayed onset muscle soreness in the low back, their baseline fear of pain predicted reductions in their maximal force production and increased interference of pain in their daily activities. So, in other words, their pre-training psychological factors, their beliefs about pain, their expectations about pain, et cetera, were predictive of how much their post-training strength performance was affected. So if you go into your training terrified about how much how sore you're gonna be, etc., it is likely to be a more intense experience for you, a more debilitating experience, and to affect you to a greater degree. Similarly, in another trial where shoulder delayed onset muscle soreness was induced in healthy participants, their baseline fear of pain was also predictive of post-training disability and fear of movement. So as with every other type of pain, it appears to be a biopsychosocial phenomenon, meaning that there are other variables that can impact the experience of delayed onset muscle soreness beyond just muscular damage or metabolic factors or things like that.
1: Nice. I like that. That was a good addition. There's a good rebuttal to a non rebuttal. So I like that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Next question. Is knee valgus in the squat bad? Uh, I will lead this and I will say no, I'll respond negatively. So knee valgus, what is it? First of all, uh, effectively when you see somebody's knees come in. Uh, relative to their foot. Um, so if the knees cave in, we call that knee valgus, knee cave, you can call it any any number of those things. Uh, and in general, when people ask if this is bad, they tend to be asking this from an injury risk sort of standpoint, like, oh, if my knees cave in on the squat, is this uniquely sort of injurious? And the answer to that seems to be no, be, not based on like randomized controlled trials where they have people do <laughs> a squat with the knee valgus versus squat without, uh, mainly just look, there are thousands, if not tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people squatting on a daily basis with some level of knee valgus. To me, it's more of a sort of stylistic, quote unquote, choice um, to do during a squat. People's bodies will find the sort of uh, path of least resistance to accomplish the task. And depending on your anthropometry, depending on how you squat, where you're holding the bar, your foot position, toe angle, things of that nature that will kind of determine the constraints for your movement. And so some people will be kind of set up to maybe have a higher risk of knee valgus versus others. perhaps a wider stance, for example, more toe angle, for example, um, a low bar squat, uh, for example, those would all be maybe uh, some things that might increase the likelihood that somebody's going to do uh, have knee valgus, also if the weight's heavier. But I don't think it's uniquely bad from an injury risk standpoint. With respect to efficiency, like performance, I think you could make. An argument. I suspect that my colleague here, Dr. Brocky, will make the <laughs> argument that you could, if the knees do not cave in on the way up, perhaps that's more efficient for transmitting force from the lower body through the upper body and then subsequently to the bar during a squat. Uh, however, when you look at top squatters, whether it's in powerlifting, Olympic weightlifting, strongman, other barbell sports, some of the strongest people to walk this planet, some people still have knee valgus, and I think overall it's a result or an artifact of the style in which they squat. If the hips go back out of the bottom significantly and people uh, rely a lot on posterior chain sort of strength to get the bar moving you have kind of more degrees of freedom with the knees rather than if the knees stay forward out of the bottom and i think a lot of that's a stylistic sort of uh, again choice it's not that you're consciously choosing this it's just really dependent on how efficient are you at your current style of squatting what style did you sort of adopt based on your setup and so overall, I don't think that knee valgus is harmful with respect to injury. I don't think it's necessarily uh, reducing performance. I suspect, again, that Dr. Baraki will argue in favor of avoiding knee valgus with respect to efficiency and also caveat this by the magnitude of knee valgus. Uh,
2: so let's, let's hear your rebuttal here. <laughs> do, I, do, do I need to now? <laughs> there, are, there are probably three, three ways that I would look at this. So one, I agree that knee valgus in itself is not something that is directly uh, cont- contributing to moving the bar upwards in a squat and so as a you know in in most situations um and so as a result uh it would not be generally desirable for as something to deliberately cue or pursue when you're teaching somebody the squat for that reason um just like any other movement um that does not contribute to moving the load in the direction that you want is generally something that you would not cue towards um the other is that um yes, while there are some high level squatters who you could point to who do this, um, the overwhelming majority uh, of of, uh, higher performing lifters do not have um, a substantial degree of this um, when they are uh, uh, in their training or in their performance. I do think that pretty much everybody is going to have a relatively tiny amount of this when they're ascending out of the bottom. I think it's quite difficult to absolutely rigidly keep everything locked in place, nor do we necessarily advise that for people, because we recognize that there's some inherent and very natural movement variation. So these are not things that we would necessarily sweat. But um, there is the matter of uh, kind of degree. And so I would, there's, there's basically, I suppose I could distill this argument down to like, there's effectively no situation where I would deliberately cue somebody towards this. And so that being the case, uh, it's, it, it's difficult to make a strong case, um, you know, for it. The other is that, um, If it is something I I tend to agree with you that it is not injurious or harmful when it is somebody's um, kind of gravitated towards their adopted style over a long period of time training in that particular way. I'm not going to worry about so much from an injury standpoint, even if I could potentially, you know, for some people um, view their performance as being uh, improved by not doing that. Although at the highest levels of competition, that is really no longer the case. I think that, you know, it is there are i can envision scenarios where somebody who does not habitually do this has a sudden and uncontrolled knee valgus moment in uh, under under a load and that is more of a situation of as with any other sudden and uncontrolled movement under load there is likely to be some uh, degree of injury risk associated with that so i think that there's some context to consider here in terms of what's the level of um, development of this trainee. Is this something they've habitually done or is this like a fluke out of nowhere? They're, you know, their knees crashed in under a load when that's not something they habitually do. I might have some concern about that. And then um, from the context of efficiency, you were obviously right and anticipated that, uh, that counterpoint um, and just recognizing that this is something that I would effectively never cue towards, which is kind of uh, my big picture view on this.
1: Um, my rebuttal is that since we cannot control or prevent high-velocity sudden changes in movement under, uh, under no control, which we call accidents. I will just cede the rest of my time because my colleague actually agreed with me. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right, next question. For people without symptoms, does having low testosterone decrease strength and or hypertrophy gains? This is uh, for you to kick off.
2: <laughs> uh, so... Um... This is one that is really difficult. So, I think that uh part of the problem that I think I'm having with this question is the phrase low testosterone. Because as we have talked about on our previous, you know, pod, way too many podcasts on this topic that those blood levels that you are alluding to can in the vast majority of situations really only be interpreted in the context of what the person is feeling reporting to you experiencing other signs things like that it's really really difficult to interpret these numbers just in isolation i have frequently cited when we've had these conversations my example of my one one patient that was very memorable who had advanced hiv aids and his testosterone level was literally like below the lower limit of detection of the test it was like effectively zero it's like yeah i'll grant you he had he had low testosterone even though I suspect that whatever symptoms he was feeling were not exclusively related to that low testosterone, likely related to having numerous infections, having AIDS, et cetera. So even then it was more complicated than just the testosterone level. So for me, when I think about low testosterone, I am only thinking about it through the lens of clinical hypogonadism, right? Because that's what it takes for me to diagnose somebody with what is known as low testosterone. It requires the combination of Symptoms, signs, and a concomitantly you know low level, I do not view quote unquote low testosterone as a thing in people who are telling me they feel fine, they have no concerns no no issues whatsoever um, I suspect you could. If I had to anticipate the counter of my my colleague, as, as you say, that there are situations where people feel a particular way and they have felt that way for so long that they may not recognize potentially what quote unquote normal feels like and they may ultimately feel a lot better with a higher level. I find that to be a plausible thing, but it is not the norm when it comes to, um, these findings on, on lab tests for, for a lot of people. And then, um, so, so for me, if I'm thinking that somebody has clinical hypogonadism, which implies some signs, some symptoms supportive that led me to test in the first place. Yeah, I can certainly buy that they would, uh, potentially have improved responses to training if I restored them to a eugonadal state, um. However, if somebody has no signs, no symptoms, I am typically pretty reluctant to pursue that diagnostic path of testing because then those numbers are increasingly difficult to explain and people end up seeking out all sorts of other things that can be potentially dangerous um, when when you go down that path. So if somebody, if I, if I uh, have assessed somebody and they seem to be eugonadal, meaning they have normal gonadal function as, you know, say, you know, they because I've even had situations where people might come to me with like a relative, you know, a lower than they want to blood testosterone level, or even one that is borderline on the lab testing things. But when I take a history, they feel fine. They have no issues. Their erectile function is like completely normal. And like, for me, that like kind of, that really lowers the probability of hypogonadism. And so in that case, if I'm like, this person's probably eugonadal, meaning they have normal gonadal function i don't think it is likely that their training response is substantially attenuated or or impaired now if you're comparing it to a situation where they went on super therapeutic testosterone and they cranked up their test their their blood testosterone levels to fifteen hundred or something then that's a completely different scenario um, so that's kind of why I had a bit of an issue with this a challenge with this question just because for people without symptoms it's like for people without symptoms i'm not checking
1: <laughs> so so to to just for the listeners at home, you were responding that. Uh, for people without symptoms, having low testosterone is unlikely to decrease their strength or hypertrophy gains? So you're responding negatively?
2: I suppose suppose you're going to have to frame it that way. I still just have such issues with this term of low testosterone in the context of no symptoms.
1: (laughs) So that forces me to take the affirmative. And so while I acknowledge that having low levels of testosterone without symptoms, so that just means below some sort of lab Uh, uh, you know, cutoff, which is usually about 300 nanograms per deciliter at most, at most labs, um, while acknowledging uh, your response. And also that there are conditions like EHMC, which is exercise hypogonadal male condition, which is having people have low testosterone, um, usually uh, ultra endurance or endurance athletes, they have low testosterone, but no signs or symptoms, no effect on their training, no effect on their performance. Also, the fact that men and women gain the same amount of relative strength and relative hypertrophy, despite having you know, 5 to 10x differences in testosterone, thus kind of making you wonder, like, how important is testosterone in this? Acknowledging all of that, I would say, and the only way that I could respond in the affirmative here that uh, having low testosterone would, in fact, be a problem is that we don't actually have any data on people without signs or symptoms of hypogonadism, but with documented laboratory evidence of having low testosterone levels compared to those with testosterone levels in the normal range. I would predict, much as you said, it's unlikely that if their testosterone levels are not causing any other signs or symptoms of hypogonadism, that they're unlikely to have signs and symptoms of reduced gains from training due to hypogonadism, but we just don't know yet. And so it is possible, I'm granting the possibility there, although again, The evidence is unclear. And finally, to your point that, yes, if you compare people taking super physiological, super therapeutic doses of testosterone to those who previously had low levels or even normal levels, yes, you would expect greater gains in strength and hypertrophy. There's a dose-dependent relationship there, but that's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about people with low levels of testosterone, under 300 nanograms per deciliter but no signs or symptoms compared to those with greater than 300 nanograms per deciliter, but not taking exogenous uh, forms of testosterone. So the best way I can answer is that we don't know, although I tend to agree with you.
2: Here's my here's my last additional hot take here uh, that I, that I kind of just thought of is we've talked before about how uh, this the physiology of testosterone is pretty complicated. And so a lot of it is not just the blood level of testosterone, but also the androgen receptors, the receptors that testosterone has to bind to. And so there's a complicated feedback mechanism that leads people to kind of equilibrate out at a particular level. And so for people who have much more sensitive androgen receptors, they will get the majority, you know, they'll get their testosterone mediated effects at a lower blood concentration because their receptors are more sensitive. So their equilibration, their equilibrium level will tend to be lower. People with more resistant receptors who who are not as sensitive to the effects of blood testosterone, they will need higher blood levels. They will naturally equilibrate at that higher level due to the feedback mechanisms that are happening in the body. That's why looking at snapshot blood tests in isolation is pretty meaningless. Now, the hot take here, I guess, is that if you had no signs, no symptoms, measured a blood level, and it was below this quote-unquote reference range, you could be deemed you gonadal, normal gonadal function, because you you look fine, you feel fine, you have no symptoms, maybe normal libido, erectile function, all that good stuff, right? If that person goes on quote-unquote testosterone replacement therapy to get their level into a range, they are arguably on superphysiologic dosing for them. And so I would not be at all surprised if you did research on those types of people who naturally live in a completely asymptomatic way at say 220 or something like that. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is way too low, even though again, look fine, feel fine, no problems. You put them on TRT and get them up to 600, 800, they're on anabolic steroids. Right. And so you would not be able to compare that population to people who live at that 600, 800 level, um, in their natural state without being on testosterone, because that is where their system has equilibrated to leave them in a ugonatal uh, kind of state. So even a research research like that would be tricky to carry out.
1: Yeah, that's, that's speaking actually, I don't know if you remember this. We did a, a podcast with Carl Nadolsky, Dr. Carl Nodolsky. he's an endocrinologist. And, uh, he, he, uh, uh, turned me on to some papers assessing um, testosterone levels in highly competitive athletes, people who are training a ton. And there does seem to be this relationship between people who with a lot of training volume and their testosterone levels being lower. And his thought was that if you put those folks on TRT, testosterone replacement therapy type doses, that effectively they would now be on super therapeutic, super physiological yeah. doses of testosterone. And so in that instance, you could make an argument that TRT would be like a PED yeah. In that sort of situation, but we yeah. currently don't have a accurate way to assess, you know, androgen receptor sensitivity and and how that because that's going to be dynamic too. If you have more testosterone on board,
2: do those things auto regulate? Maybe. Endocrinology is complicated, and so I get very irritated with people in the fitness industry just casually throwing around uh, advice and interpretations of endocrinologic uh, testing uh, without uh, being able to take a clinical history or anything like that.
1: I feel the same way about gut health. Just whenever I hear that, just immediate blood pressure goes up 20 points. Yeah, yeah. All right, two questions left. <clears throat> Thoughts on obesity medications for children? So I'm going to take this, and although it wasn't phrased in a way that's a yes or no, I'm going <laughs> to respond yes in general. And this is in agreement with the latest uh, American Academy of Pediatrics recommendation. Uh, January 9th of 2023, they actually published these new recommendations um, for uh, treating obesity in children and adolescents, which for the first time recommended medications and surgery as possible treatment options. Um, They specifically state that intensive health, behavior, and lifestyle treatment to include nutrition and physical activity counseling is the foundation of management for children with overweight or obesity. And they specifically recommend that we're available 26 hours or more of face-to-face contact with professionals should be performed over a three to 12 month period, citing data showing that this intensity of intervention led to greater improvements. And then they further go on to say, if insufficient response to these sort of lifestyle and behavioral changes, they recommend considering pharmacotherapy for those greater than ages, age of 12. For eight to 11 year olds, there's insufficient evidence, but medicine may be considered depending on um, the sort of burden, disease burden that they currently have. Uh, I will say this, that with for lifestyle alone or lifestyle and behavioral therapy alone, there's not great outcomes. so you compare diet, terry counseling, exercise counseling, behavior change counseling, you combine all of those the outcomes in the pediatric population it's not really any better than those in adults. I had somebody on my latest post say, no, you can control more of what kids do. It's like, can you though? Because kids uh, kids seem to have a similar response that only a fraction, a small fraction of those individuals receiving um, all of this intensive care actually see cl- clinically significant weight loss that they can maintain for a long period of time. And so if we look at this through the lens of cumulative exposure, to obesity or excess adiposity excess body fat Uh, an individual a pediatric uh, patient so somebody you know uh, who's 12 years old for example if they have excess adiposity and that doesn't get dealt with soon that's their whole life that they're dealing with that cumulative exposure to the negative impact of excess adiposity and that's not just from a biological standpoint or biomedical standpoint but also socially And, and i think that can have real harms and so we know that these medications have great efficacy, even in uh, this population. There's over 30 different studies looking at this right now, which is actually pretty impressive. Um, so it's, I think when people, when you bring up the topic of medication with respect to managing obesity, people are like, oh, it's cheating, it's a pill, it's easy way out or whatever, we should really hammer on lifestyle stuff. And we are fully in support. And I say I, cause we're gonna argue, I am fully in support of advocating for lifestyle and behavioral changes. But I acknowledge that these tend to not be very effective for a broad uh, swath of the population. And when I say not effective, I mean not achieving clinically significant weight loss and not being able to adhere that, uh, adhere to that. And further, um, those individuals who have insufficient response, then what? You just say, try harder. And I think that's sort of inappropriate management of those individuals due to the sort of cumulative exposure to excess adiposity.
2: Yeah, uh, definitely don't love being forced into the nay <laughs> on, on this one here. Um, so I think if I'm, I, I am inclined to agree with the vast majority of of what you said here, um, and I think you know it's interesting for me to think about the pushback that we get on some of this stuff, because I imagine, and I think I've, I've talked about this before, but let's say we take like the pinnacle randomized trials of these uh, interventions, these medicines or surgery, you know, bariatric surgery, anything like that. And we strip away the details from the study of like what the specific intervention was and say, we like mad lib it. And we just put in place of, you know, this intervention was done. And we say like, you know, uh, the hypertrophy two template, or uh, a keto diet, or, you know, whatever specific, you know, other intervention. And then we made a podcast or a reel or a tick tock or whatever breaking news, this new science shows that this this training program leads to an average of, of uh, 25% weight loss that's sustained out to a year everybody would lose their minds about this and call it the newest wigovi killer or something like that and be super in favor of it but as soon as you take that same exact outcome data and you say that it's coming from a medicine or you say it's coming from a surgery or you say it's coming from anything like that or an immunization or something like that everybody loses their minds and they're like i you know i can't get on board with this big pharma you know money whatever all this other kind of stuff and it's like do you care about the outcomes or not if you care about the outcomes then there's pretty difficult to argue against the outcomes of these things in comparison. We, you know, every time, I don't do this a ton, but I know Dr. Nadolsky Spencer posts a ton about these medications. And reliably, there's somebody who comes on the post saying, you know, well, if people would just exercise or something like that, that they would get the same result. And it's like, okay, Mr. Fitness Influencer or Mrs. Fitness Influencer, let's recruit you and all of your closest, uh, you know, uh, closest friends who are all working in this industry let's recruit a random sample of the general population suffering from obesity and give them to you for as long as you want. Show me equivalent or better outcomes to these things. Show me anything even close to these outcomes sustained out to a year. You will not achieve that because that is unfortunately the reality of the situation. And then what will they do? Well, the person didn't file the program, they'll just blame the person, right? So I think that that's like my big picture issue with this is just we are paying attention to the actual outcomes without the moral baggage that's being attached to these things compared with what the way other people are viewing it. So after that several minutes of generally agreeing, if I had to contort A potential disagreement to this, Um, it would it would be um, thinking about the prospect of you know say you have a twelve year old and say that that uh, you know at the moment uh, say average life expectancy is whatever seventy eight years or seventy nine years or something like that. The question of committing somebody to these medicines for like sixty years is something that is relatively unheard of in a lot of other contexts in in, in clinical medicine. There are not a ton of things that um, I can think of in, you know, medical intervention history that we commit people to effectively for their entire lifespan. There are certainly, you know, particular disease states that require an intervention up front. And so I'm not necessarily wanting to induce panic about this, because of course, everybody's like, well, what about the long-term effects? Because my counter to that is like, there there have not really been um, interventions like, you know, an, an immunization that you give somebody that like 40 years later has a catastrophic outcome associated with it. And exactly. So the overwhelming majority of adverse effects that people are going to experience from a given medication or a given intervention are not going to take decades to manifest. And so that's not necessarily my greatest source of concern, but rather just like, From a systems level, the idea that we're going to commit the entire population to all of these treatments for decades now, the counter to that, if I have to keep arguing with myself is we do that for a lot of other other things, lipid lowering therapies or aspirin or hypertensive medicines or something like that. And so it's just a big picture question of like, is this what we are wanting to work towards or be okay with? And um, I think your and my position is like, we kind of have to be. We kind of have to be because as we've said before, our two ways of addressing Issues with obesity on the population are fixing the food environment, which requires government intervention. No corporation, no food industry business is going to self-regulate voluntarily to make their food less tasty, less palatable, to get people to consume less of it. So it absolutely requires government-level intervention uh, because America is the country that it is that is exceedingly unlikely to ever happen, leaving us with the only options to address obesity being at the individual level with individual level interventions. The individual level interventions that we have are purely lifestyle, which again, RCT after RCT after RCT show trivial effects over the long term, uh with rant you know, on on a on a population level. Um Versus medications, which have their own upsides and downsides versus bariatric metabolic surgery, which is going to be the topic of of our uh, upcoming uh, upcoming podcast soon. And if we purely look at outcomes, which has the greatest efficacy with the least risk lowering overall mortality, all that other kind of stuff, these higher intensity interventions are the ones that get us there. Um, It's just Frustrating that it is going to require us committing uh, a large swath of our population to decades of these treatments um, because uh, we refuse to do what is necessary, unlike the societal policy level.
1: Yep. Uh, I share your frustrations, uh, though I do agree that it will require government intervention to change the food supply, the food environment, increase access uh, to places to be active and promotion of physical activity in general. Uh, and we also need more lifestyle recommendations and behavior change stuff at the healthcare level, at the educator level, and also in the home. All of that stuff needs to happen. Yes. However, the policy stuff's going to take a long time to happen, if ever. And despite improved access to places to exercise, improved recommendations for behavior change stuff, I am not optimistic that those would actually put a significant dent in this problem due to the current food environment. And so the precedent has already been set with multiple pediatric uh, conditions that does commit individuals to lifelong therapy for example familial hypercholesterolemia uh, cystic fibrosis sickle cell anemia i mean you go there's a number of congenital sort of issues that we already do this for because the benefits outweigh the risks uh, and you could make the argument if i was going to argue with myself that we don't have 60-year data on this in po- in pediatric populations and that's true but the current long-term evidence we have in adults shows oh they have less heart attacks Oh, wow, it improves their diabetes. Oh, it improves their overall, overall metabolic health and, and this, that, and the other. And so it's like the risks of not treating obesity, I think, far outweigh the risks from the medications themselves. New data may emerge that, that may change that, but it's unlikely that this is going to be the, this big signal that we find 50 years from now that we're like, dang, we missed that. And there was no evidence coming out showing this until the 50-year mark. Um, but yeah, hey, make sure you guys vote appropriately. Um, you know, handful handful of politicians actually talking about the food environment. Those would be your your key folks. I just don't think that's likely to happen in our lifetime, and so we're kind of we're kind of stuck. And I share your frustrations with that. I look people. Somebody on my post was like, "Do you think that taking medications like that's a a superior option to lifestyle only?" And I'm like, "I don't. You. It's not an either or." Because that assumption is that lifestyle is just as effective as medications for making these changes. And it's not. Not as many people achieve clinically significant weight loss. They don't. Uh, the amount of weight loss in total is far less with lifestyle only. And they don't sustain it for as long. And there's these other like weight independent seemingly effects with reduction to cardiovascular disease, improvement in kidney health, type 2 diabetes, et cetera. And it's like, yeah, so it seems like you're getting like a, like a synergistic effect here going on that you don't get from lifestyle. But I want both. If I got to pick, yeah. I'd want both.
2: If you just pay attention to the outcomes, the answers are pretty clear. If you don't pay as much attention to the outcomes, then you can you know, make all sorts of nonsensical arguments. All
1: right. This is the last question, and I, a fun one. A fun one to end. Great debates in fitness and health. Should doctors discourage smoking and riding motorcycles? <laughs> Austin, you get to lead. <laughs>
2: Yeah, so I'm going to take the affirmative on this. I think that the uh, evidence for uh, smoking cessation is, you know, pretty clear at this point. So I don't think that there needs to be a huge case um, to recommend that. As far as riding motorcycles go, I'm trying to uh, the way I'm the way I thought about that when I read it is kind of like you know with a lot of interventions that we recommend to patients, we can conceptualize them. Uh, through the idea of like a number needed to treat, which is an imperfect metric for many reasons that we will not get into today. Um, uh, But the idea is that how many people would I need to counsel to do this particular thing before one might benefit from it, whether reducing a bad outcome or not dying or something like that. And I'm thinking about, you know riding motorcycles what would be the number needed to treat if for me to discourage how many motorcyclists would i need to discourage to reduce you know uh, uh, before before i'm able to reduce one injury and it seems like the nnt would be one mm-hmm. <laughs> particularly over a long enough time span but really it's not even that long of a time span <laughs> so i think that uh, in fact the nnt for discouraging riding motorcycles might even be better than the nnt for discouraging smoking, smoking. <laughs> yeah if the t- if the t- follow up time was, was yeah. short yeah <laughs>
1: Yeah, you know, my father Leonard said something to me once when I first started riding. Um, this may or may not surprise you. I was a, I was a crasher when I first started riding. But
2: that's kind of expected. that's like a, you, that's like a motorcyclist phenotype is
1: a crasher.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're a crasher.
1: Yeah, slow and steady versus a crasher. You just send okay. it all the time. All right. And he goes yeah. with motorcycles. It's not if you'll crash. It's when you'll crash. He and uh, yeah, and I was like, should I should I go back out there? He's like, get your ass back out there. I'm like, all right, yeah, fair enough. Uh, I see the rest of my time because I think you're right. Just you know, <laughs> the counter argument would be like enjoyment, quality of life. And so sure, there yeah. there are a number of things that may be not health promoting or the safest things that bring great joy. And that's a risk benefit thing. Yeah, yet. you're
2: balancing enjoyment, quality of life of being on a bike to uh how happy you were when your shoulder or hip were out of their socket.
1: <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Uh, ter- turns out I value fun more than I do musculoskeletal <laughs> integrity. All right. Uh, that's a wrap here, episode 249. Great debates in fitness and <laughs> Uh, if you guys liked this format, let me know. Send me an email, media at barbellmedicine.com. We're also always accepting quack watch suggestions. This, I knew this one was going to be long, so I had to save the thing that I had built up uh, for the next one. You guys aren't going to want to miss that. But yeah, let us know, mediaupbarbellmedicine.com. Also, we do have some announcements. We have two new live in-person seminars on the docket. They're available if you want to get your ticket now, because I, I expect these will uh, sell out rather quickly. So yes, we still are going to Australia in January of 2024. Um, have a few spots left. Uh, we'll be in Sydney and Perth. We also have our uh, seminar up for Limerick, Ireland. We're going there. That's uh, that's on the website now. So you guys can uh, get your ticket to that one. Every time we've gone to Europe, we just sell out very quickly. So like if you are in ireland if you want to be in ireland if you could be in ireland check that one out and then we'll be in san antonio with uh, sal and the gang Uh, what's his
2: gym called again watchdog strength
1: Watchdog strength. Yeah. So that's up on the website as well. So if those live in-person seminars, uh, new YouTube videos on the Barbell Medicine YouTube channel, you can check that out. But uh, yeah, special thanks to Dr. Austin Baraki for humoring me on this format. Again, let me know if you liked it. Um, Before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. For everyone here at Barbell Medicine, I'm Dr. Jordan Weigemann. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast.